uh, you can turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. Uh, When you found it, go ahead and stand to your feet uh, for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the NIV translation. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray, God, we ask now through the power of your spirit that you would be the translator of this word to our hearts. We're not content this morning to be informed, uh, to be entertained. We're looking for uh, a fresh word. We're looking for a transforming word. And only you can do that. So we ask that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you, John, for reading. From this text this morning, I will preach from uh, the title, The Injustices of Earth and the Resources of Heaven. The Injustices of Earth and the Resources of Heaven. Uh, Most of you probably know uh, my oldest son, Uh, Elliot. He's five years old. Uh, Many of you probably also know that Elliot uh, is uh, adopted just like his uh, younger son or younger brother, Winston, our younger son. I'm a little sleep deprived right now because of him. So, Um, and what you may or may not know is that uh, uh, Elliot's ethnicity um, is Filipino and Puerto Rican, uh, but mostly African-American. Elliot is five years old. Uh, This means that in seven years, Elliot will be 12 years old. In seven years, Elliot will be the same age that Tamir Rice was when he was playing with a toy gun recently and the Cleveland police pulled up to check out this, quote, young black male. Uh, In seven years, he will be the same age as Tamir Rice was when he was confronted by a white police officer who had been deemed emotionally unstable and unfit to serve in his previous policing job. In seven years, my son will be the same age as Tamir Rice was. Tamir Rice, who had exactly two seconds 
before that white, emotionally unstable police officer pulled his gun and shot him twice. In seven years, my son will be the same age as Tamir Rice, who after being shot was left unattended on the ground for four minutes. Rather than administering first aid to the mortally wounded child, the officers instead tackled his 14-year-old sister who was running to his aid. They handcuffed her, put her in the back of a police car where she had to watch her brother bleed. In seven years, my son will walk in Tamir's shoes. In 12 years, he will walk in Trayvon's shoes and Jordan Davis's shoes. In 13 years, he will walk in Michael Brown's shoes. And so I think of what ta Coates wrote after Michael Brown's killing. We cannot protect our children because racism in America is not merely a belief system, but a heritage. And the inability of black parents to protect their children is an ancient tradition. And so when I think about these things, I have to admit that this morning on this long holiday weekend, I am angry. When I consider that it has been 47 years since the Reverend Dr. King was gunned down in Memphis, and yet we are still trying to convince this country that black lives matter, I get angry. When we consider that it has been 50 years since the Voting Rights Act was passed, 61 years since separate schooling based on race was ruled to be unconstitutional, and yet here we are still fighting to protect voting rights, fighting for quality education for every child, I get angry. When we consider that it's been 100 years since Ida B. Wells, right from this neighborhood, shown the spotlight of her journalism and her rhetoric on the rampant lynchings in the South of unarmed, innocent African-American people. And yet today we are facing the mass imprisonment of black and brown citizens, a reality unprecedented anywhere else in the world. I get angry. When we remember that the Civil War ended 150 years ago, and yet our nation remains unconvinced about the basic personhood of black and brown people, I get angry. When we remember that the first Africans were stolen from their continent 400 years ago and brought to America, when the wealth and power of this nation was purchased with the sweat and blood and suffering and death of those descendants and kin of those Africans. And yet when America has the audacity to to place the blame of black suffering at the feet of black people, I get angry. When we hear pundits lie and spin about the suffering and prejudice faced by brown and black individuals, when they ignore the white supremacy that has been this nation's diet and religion for hundreds of years, I get angry. 
I'm angry this morning because what James Baldwin wrote was true when he wrote it in 1972, and it's true in 2015. The truth is that this country does not know what to do with its black population now that the blacks are no longer a source of wealth, are no longer to be bought and sold and bred like cattle, and they especially do not know what to do with young black men who pose as devastating a threat to the economy as they do to the morals of young white cheerleaders. It is not at all accidental that the jails and the army and the needle claim so many. But there are still too many prancing about for the public comfort. I'm angry this morning because theologian James Cone is Truth, when he writes, whites cannot separate themselves from the culture that lynched blacks unless they confront history and expose the sin of white supremacy. Yet how many of us white people are willing to confront that history and expose that sin? I'm angry this morning because of the lies our nation continues to tell about itself. I'm angry because we kill our prophets and then sanitize and commercialize their legacies. I'm angry because my son is five, and soon he will be be 12, and then he will be 17, and then he will be 18. And if I'm honest, I'm angry this morning because the injustices of this earth seem so entrenched that I wonder whether there is any realistic hope for anything different. We are not the first to wonder about these things. We are not the first to wonder about earth's injustices. The letter that John read to us this morning was addressed to the ancient city of Ephesus, a city at the center of Roman imperial power. The church had spread beyond its relative safety in Jerusalem, and now they had to figure out what did it mean to live in this sort of place, under this sort of government. The key question, a key question for these early Christians as their movement began to spread was, how will we resist the unjust and the wicked powers we face? How will we maintain our identity in this land? Our our passage shows two ways in which the early church answered this question. And as we listen to their answers, I, I hope that as we hear their words and see their example, that added to the anger that some of us feel this morning will be hope. We are not the first to face the injustices of this earth. We are not the first to walk closely with righteous anger. And so we have this morning to learn about hope. How will we resist the unjust and the wicked powers? The first thing that I think we can see is that this early church chose to focus on God's power as exemplified through Jesus' resurrection and rule. They chose to focus on God's power. 
Let me read a few of these verses to you again, beginning in 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul has this slightly annoying habit of building these run-on sentences that can be hard to track. If I could simplify it, he is saying, I pray that you would know the power of God. Not some generic power from some generic God. I want you to know the power of the living God who raised Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead. This is what Paul wants for this early church seated in this place. Some of us this morning tend to focus much of our attentions and energies on the unjust and corrupt powers. I know this because I am one of you. And we need to do this. We need to see these wicked and unjust and evil things and call them out. But, 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 they can never be our primary focus. Because there is no life there. There is no hope there. A person lost in the desert, dying of thirst, will only find it so helpful to have someone come along and describe his circumstances to him. What he needs is someone with a way out of the wilderness, someone who can show him where the water is. He needs the hope that despite how terrible things appear, there's a way out. There's life ahead. And it's no different for us. We must be honest about the corrupt powers and sources of injustice in our city, but these cannot be the primary focus of our sustained attention. They cannot be our only focus. Primary focus must be on the one who elicits not anger, but awe. Our focus must be on the one who brings out in our hearts not pain, but praise. Our focus must be on the one who compels us not to despair, but to delight. Our focus must be on the one who compels us not to worry, but to worship. Our attentions must be given to the one who provokes us, not toward apathy, but to action. In other words, we must focus our very best attention, not on the corrupt and impotent and fraudulent powers of this world, the ones that peddle in division and destruction. No, we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We are called to focus our gaze on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Called to behold the one who even now is seated at the right hand of God the Father, far above every rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one think this was the secret weapon held by many of the leaders and the participants of the civil rights movement. 
obviously they knew about the injustices all around them. Many of those women and men and children were forced to experience those injustices in profound and humiliating ways every single day. But as clearly as they could describe those corrupt powers and as precisely as they could articulate what needed to change in America, many of those individuals had an even greater and more determined focus. Jesus, their Savior. And so they could experience the the worst of racial injustice without being overcome by it. They could taste the venom of hatred without ever allowing their hearts to be taken hostage by it. Reverend Dr. King hints at this in one of his most well-known speeches in 1967 at Riverside Church when he publicly comes out against the war in Vietnam. He says, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative? Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? Do you see where his focus and his attention was? So it's not simply that you and I are called to focus on the only genuine power in the universe, the power of God. It's not only that, it's when we focus our attention in this way, when we worship and esteem Jesus, our lives actually change. And one of the ways that we change is that we begin to see that the resources of heaven are actually available to us now, here. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Paul says God has placed everything under the feet of Jesus, the head of the church. Our identification with Christ, our incorporation in Jesus, means that the power that is at work and available through Jesus is available to us as well. Do you believe it? So Jesus can say things like this. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, the authority has been given to me. I've won it. It's mine. And so with that authority and power, I send you. Or how about in John chapter 14? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. 
resources, the power, the authority of heaven is available to us today. As we are given the spirit of wisdom and revelation that Paul talks about, as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, we will see and worship our powerful Savior. And we will also discover that his power is available to us. To put it differently, when we see Jesus in his power, we discover that the resources of heaven are available to us in our struggle against the injustices of earth. How will we resist the unjust and the wicked powers? We begin by focusing on God's power as expressed through Jesus' resurrection and his rule. When the power of God is our focus, all of the corrupt powers slide into their rightful place. We don't ignore them. We don't downplay them, but we allow them to take their rightful place beneath the feet of Jesus, who is making all things right. About a week ago, I was out in a small town in Illinois. I had a breakfast with a pastor of a, of a church, predominantly white church, white pastor, great guy, like him a lot. We're talking about some of these things. And, uh, and he, at some point he goes, but what can we actually do about this stuff? So the, injustice, racism, it's so complicated. It's so entrenched. It's so systemic. What can a church... Act- Only policy would make a difference. And what can a church do about policy? That's interesting, isn't it? That that, that we've lost the imagination to see the resources of God available to the people of God to confront the injustices of earth. And so the second way that we can answer this question, how will we resist the unjust and wicked powers? is that we can discover and utilize heaven's resources against earth's unjust powers. We begin with the power of God. When we see God's power, we begin to see what is available to us. Now, we could spend the rest of the year looking into the resources of heaven. I have time this morning for four. I've chosen these four because they're relatively straightforward. They're relatively simple. They kind of flow throughout Uh, the scriptures, and I think they are particularly relevant to this community in this day. The first is this. The first of heaven's resources available to us is the resource of reconciled community. I know we talk about this a lot. Drawing from 2 Corinthians, we say regularly that our church's identity is as, as is as a reconciled and reconciling people. Through Jesus, we have been reconciled to God, and through Jesus, we have been reconciled to one another. This would have been an incredibly radical implication of the gospel to those in Ephesus. I don't think it's any less radical in our day. How does reconciled community play out in the struggle against injustice? I think it begins to deconstruct Racism. I really believe this. You and I are subject to what social scientists call implicit racial bias. Anybody heard that term before? What this means is that we breathe the air of a racialized society. And in so many different subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, we are formed to associate certain positive or negative 
uh, uh, um, emotions based on how somebody looks. You can go online and take an implicit bias test to sort of see how you've been impacted by this. But within a diverse church community, these implicit biases are not just challenged, they're actually slowly replaced by other more generous and loving biases. Because now you are in submitted community and relationship with those who look different than you, who come from different places, whose culture is not the same as yours, and yet you love this person. You care for this person. This person has babysat your children. You've eaten in this person's home. And so now this becomes your starting point. Are you with me? Another way in which reconciled community uh, plays out is that it requires that we stay. Many of us don't like this one. I don't love it. One of the defining legacies of our city is white flight. Reconciled community is the opposite of white flight. It requires that we stay present to one another. Being a part of community means that I don't get to sneak out the back door. Being part of community means that when I face a major decision in my life, I invite you to the table to help me discern God's will for my life. I don't get to email you from California and say, God told me I'm supposed to move to where it's warmer. That's not ever happened. Just, I'm not thinking of any, some of you are like, are you thinking? No, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular about that. That's not happened. As far as I know, at least they haven't told me that that was their reason for leaving. We don't walk away from people who are different than us. We don't get to walk away when we are hurt or wounded. We have to reconcile. We don't walk away when we're uncomfortable. We actually learn to discern the Holy Spirit's presence in the midst of the discomfort as the voice of God for us. That's the first one. Here's the second resource that's available to us. Secured identities. I know this is another one we spent a ton of time on. I preached like an entire sermon on this just a couple weeks ago. Don't tune me out just yet. In Christ Jesus, you have been given a secure and eternal identity as a son of God, as a daughter of God. You no longer have to defend yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You can live with confidence from your place as a beloved and empowered child of God. That's who you are. Amen? There's more. From this place of a secured identity in Christ, our ethnic and cultural and uh, historical identities are also affirmed. Deep within Christian belief is the idea that God loves us as we are. We are not required to become something different in order to be acceptable to God. Now, if we're honest, the church has screwed that sucker up many times. Let's just be honest about that. But that is not the gospel. That is an aberration of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always translated into a particular, local, specific, historical, cultural reality. And that person and, that those, and those people in that place can hear and know the love of God language. 
within their cultural and historical reality. Our country slices and dices, marginalizes and sidelines based on skin color, accent, grammar, traditions, the shape of your eyes, your nose, and your height. And add to the list. But this is not how it works within the kingdom of God. We don't do that. We're not playing that game. This community right here is meant to be the place where every single one of us walks in the door and experiences, not just knows, but experiences the radical hospitality of Jesus. Experience in your bones. You're welcomed here. You're seen here. You're loved here. Here's the second thing that our secured identities do in this struggle against injustice. We are protected from being co-opted by the unjust and wicked powers. Uh, there's a, a, a pastor and theologian, Ray, Raymond Rivera, who's um, located in the Bronx, New York City. He's written a book called Captivity Theology. And what he does in that book is he says that as Christians, we need to understand that we are exiles. We're exiles theologically because we don't live in a Christian nation, despite what some people might want to say about that. Uh, But we're exiles uh, culturally as well because we don't buy into the the racialized ways this country works. So we experience our existence as Christians in this place as exiles. And, And as exiles, then there will be times when we have to work closely with the powers around us. When they happen, the winds happen to be blowing in the same way and we can work cooperatively. And then there will be other times when we prophetically have to speak against those powers. We can only do this if we are secure in our identity so that we are not co-opted or corrupted by those powers. Does that make sense to you? Real tangible example. On Thursday, myself and three other pastors are going to meet with superintendent of Chicago Police Department. We're going to go to headquarters, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk with him and try to uh, uh, kind of convince him to be involved in a productive way in our work uh, 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 related to trauma intervention and prevention in the city of Chicago. Having his support and his help would be amazingly helpful. So there will be times where we need to kind of work alongside that presence, right? And then there will be other times when we have to speak prophetically against it. We can only do that from our place of security in our identities in Christ. Are you with me? Are you with me? Here's the third one. The third resource of heaven that is available to us is courageous truth. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We follow the one who says, I am truth, capital T, which means that there is room for no lies or no deceptions among the followers of the truth. We tell the truth. That's what we do. We tell the truth. We don't sort of tell the truth. We don't soft pedal the truth. We don't tell the truth when it's convenient. We tell the truth. I want you to listen to another section of Reverend Dr. King's sermon uh, at Riverside Church in 1967. And I want you to understand that the stance that he was taking against the Vietnam War was incre- going to be incredibly problematic to him and to the civil rights movement. There was very few people speaking this way. And listen to what he said. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. Did you hear what he's saying? We're sending the poor to die on our behalf. We were 
taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. He had to tell the truth because he was following the one who is truth. Followers of Jesus deal in the currency of truth regardless of its consequences. So what does that mean? It means that we tell the truth about injustice. We resist the tendency to soft pedal. When our media attempts to redirect our attention by talking about black-on-black crime or thug culture or the so-called crisis of fatherlessness, we call bullshit. And we tell the truth instead. And we tell the truth instead. So we tell the truth about injustice, and we also tell the truth about Jesus. To those who think that Jesus is only concerned with our souls after we die, we tell the truth about the kingdom of justice and mercy and peace that Jesus came to proclaim and to inaugurate. To those who think that Jesus is just one more interesting morality teacher among others, we tell the truth about the Son of God who chose the cross to put to death the sin and rebellion in our hearts and who resurrected victoriously over evil and death and wickedness. We tell the truth. And here is the last one I'll put in front of us today. The last resource of heaven available to those of us whose gaze is affixed on the power of God. Endless grace. Endless grace. Does anybody need grace this morning? Me too. Absolutely fundamental to Christianity is the belief that salvation comes through God's grace alone. And so a chapter later in the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul will say, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But too often, you and I treat grace as if it's Christianity 101. It's sort of like the doorway that you enter, and then you can kind of leave it behind. But in fact, grace, for those of us who are Christians, is meant to be the air that we breathe. It is the sustaining reality of our relationship with God and the sustaining reality of our status as citizens of God's kingdom. And it is the grace of God that allows us to pursue God's justice in an unjust world. How? How does this work? Grace makes repentance and forgiveness normal. So much justice work, in my uh, observation, is built on getting it right. (laughs) Say the right things. Know the right things. Do the right things. Identify the right strategy. The problem is that we don't always get things right. And if you're counting on always getting it right, then it's only a matter of time until you get it wrong, and what then? But if grace is our starting point, then the goal is never to get it right. No, the goal is to quickly confess when we get it wrong. 
to confess when we wound someone, ignore someone when we flake out. When grace is our starting point, when we know how dependent we are on God's mercy and God's grace, we can also very quickly forgive when others confess their sins against us. Grace also frees us up. Grace removes the burden from our shoulders. Grace whispers into our ear, you are not called to change the world. I've met many people who are older now who in their youth wanted to change the world. And they can tell stories and they have pictures. But things didn't change as quickly as they had hoped. Things didn't change in the ways they wanted them to change. And so they walked away. And they traded in their dream for justice, for the so-called American dream of comfort and safety and complacency. Reverend Dr. King says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This is God's grace. This is God's constant, gentle, and eternal grace. And it's God's work. We are called to be his representatives. We are called to bear witness in our lives to the power of the resurrected Jesus among us. But it is God's job to change our world. I began uh, this morning by acknowledging my anger, Uh, and it's true, and I'm going to end by confessing my hope. My five-year-old and my five-month-old sons, beautiful boys with complexions darker than mine, they're growing up among youth. They are growing up among a people who are learning to be captivated first by God's beautiful power. They are growing up among a reconciled community. My sons are growing up among women and men who know and who love who they are. They are growing up among a people who will tell them the truth about this world's injustices. Growing up among a people who will tell them the truth about this world's Savior. Elliot and Winston are growing up among a people who will speak to them words of grace and who will show them how to live this way of grace. And so I am still angry, but I am not only angry. God, through his Old Testament prophet Zechariah, called his people to be prisoners of hope. In this world of injustice, may it be true for us that we are prisoners of hope. Whose eyes have been opened to see the authority and the power and the resources of heaven that are at our disposal in our struggle against injustice. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you for your word and for your truth. Spirit, would you fix these things? 
to our minds and to our hearts? Would you be forming uh, this collection of individuals into a reconciled and reconciling community that exists to glorify you and for the good of our neighbors? On this weekend especially, we thank you for the legacy of your people who went before us, who did not give up, who did not trade in your dreams for something smaller and counterfeit. Uh, we thank you for the legacy of your people and your, uh, and your church. Churches who faithfully proclaimed the truth. Churches who faithfully demonstrated the truth. Churches who put themselves on the line for the truth. Would it be the same for us? I pray for those among us this morning who feel only anger. And I pray that you would speak to them. I pray that you would affirm the anger that they feel. I pray that you would show them in so many different ways your empathy for their anger. You remind them of the hard and sometimes ugly words you have about those who commit injustice. But would you please bring alongside them this morning hope, even if it's even if it's just a glimmer of hope. I pray for those among us this morning whose circumstances and situations allow us to be mostly removed from this conversation. Would you call us and encourage us to step away from places of comfort and security and stability to be with you in what you're doing in our city? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to worship a little bit more this morning, and I actually I asked Marquita if she could let her imagination uh, go back 20, 30, 40 years Uh, to some songs that were important and helpful for um, the church and its fight for justice. And so she'll be leading us in that way, and I thank her uh, for that. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward uh, to receive the offering this morning. Again, if you filled out a welcome card or a a prayer card, please drop it in the offering basket now. If you need uh, uh, an envelope, if you're giving cash and you want that to be tracked, those are available in the lobby, and you can uh, and use those. And if you don't have time to give now, you can certainly do it at the end of the service. Let's pray for this uh, part of our worship. God, thank you for your generosity to us. Uh, thank you for always meeting needs of all different sorts and kinds right on time. Continue to be forming us into a people uh, who are generous, certainly with our finances, uh, but as we've been reminded today, with all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.